welcome to Legendary Africa, your African myth and legend podcast. <gasps> we did that so well. <laughs> I know, right? For once, starting this podcast the right way. Amazing. And can I just say, it is cold as Satan's balls in Johannesburg mm. today. Yeah, Satan's balls. No, it's crazy. There's snow in the Cape, apparently there's mm-hmm. snow in Zimbabwe. Oh, okay. I saw a picture of a woman actually snowboarding in the Western Cape, which... You know, for those of you who have never been to South Africa, it just about never happens. <laughs> I mean, except like in really mountainous areas. I mean, not that that thick layer, yeah. Yeah, there was an entire boot print in the snow. Yeah, I actually didn't realize that it snowed in Joburg City before. Oh yeah, it does happen. I did not know that. I have yet to witness it since moving to Johannesburg from Devon, but apparently it does happen. Hmm. So... How are you doing? Oh, you know, cold. <laughs> but also, like, strangely hot at the same time. Wait. Yeah, I hate it when um, you're wearing, like, ten jackets <laughs> and you're getting, like, this sort of cold sweat under yeah. the armpits, but at the same time, you're still cold. So that was happening to me last night. I was like, okay, you know what? I'm, I think I'm actually too hot. But then I take, like, one arm out and I'm like, oh, no, it's freezing. Put it back. <laughs> right? It's the whole, should I have one leg out while I'm sleeping situation. <laughs> yeah. And then you put so many blankets on top of you that you actually can't turn in the bed. <laughs> it's like, no, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. <laughs> it's so funny because it's, it's so much colder in so many other places and we're complaining. <laughs> Well, you know, that said, when I was still studying music, I went to a um, piano concert and uh, there was a guy, the, uh, a classical pianist, who was Canadian. Mm-hmm. And he said that he'd uh, recently played a concert in the Free State and he'd never been so cold in his life. Oh. I was like, this bro oh, is Canadian. because of uh, central heating. Right, yeah. I mean, here mm-hmm. in South Africa, we don't have double glazed windows. We don't have central heating. It's because we just, don't need it, usually. I mean, the buildings are not even designed to let sun in. We're living in a goddamn prison cell. <laughs> no, it's true. Um, that is actually really funny. My supervisor, who's from Germany, is always like, aren't you getting cold? And she's wearing like this big jacket. I'm just like, eh, no, it's like it's only like what, 17 degrees or whatever. Yeah, but it's cold. I'm like, isn't Germany so much colder? But then, yeah, it's a central heating issue. <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, fair warning to anyone who comes to Africa for the sunshine and the sunsets and, you know, the general beach weather. It can get fucking cold. Mm. (laughs) Anyway, that's enough of the weather. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh, we're such adults. We talk about the weather now. Yeah, why don't you start talking about... um, My health? Oh, I was going to suggest, like, a kitchen appliance that you're excited about. (laughs) You know, I always have a fondness for whisks. Whisks? Yeah. Uh... What, Just like, cause. like electric whisks, handheld whisks. You know, all kinds of whisks, big whisks, <laughs> small whisks. I'm not, I'm not discriminating against any whisks. whisks. <laughs> no whisk racism here, folks. Yep, I'm not whiskists. Whiskist. <laughs> I tried. <laughs> no, but like in all seriousness, mm. you got any news? Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. So, buckle the fuck up, uh-huh. because we are. I am like what. Two more episodes away from the finale of season two of Handmaid's Tale. Hand, <laughs> Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> I do this every time. And yo, dude. It yeah. is. Oh, okay, so, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't watched this, which I feel like it's only me who's this behind. Well, and me, but that's because I got too depressed and stopped watching, like, in season one. Yeah, it is very hectic. Do you mind if I tell you? Yeah, no, I okay. mean, go for it. I don't think I'm going to get less depressed about this show, so... <laughs> so, Alfred uh, June, is her real name, she literally birthed her own... Ch- I mean, she birthed a child by herself. Why would that happen? So, it's a complicated story, but essentially she got left behind in this winter wonderland, in, in this huge mansion, all by herself. Her person who's supposed to be taking care of her was kidnapped or whatever. So she's literally there alone. It's freezing fuck outside. Yeah, and she um, she tries to get away, but she starts going into labor. Oh shit! And so she goes inside, literally doing this all by herself. And it was an intense scene. It was probably one of the most intense birthing scenes I've ever seen. Did she have to do the whole thing where she cuts her own umbilical cord and everything? Luckily, they didn't show that that part. Yeah, I hate it when they show that part. Yeah, no, but it was just it was very it felt very real, you know, like the way she was screaming. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> was the baby okay? Yeah, no, it was. Oh, wait, so wait, wait, wait. Was it a boy? Uh, no. I mean, unless the boy's name Holly, but I don't think so. Damn it! And here I had my money on that, my fictional money. <laughs> but yeah, whew, that was. I got sweats, eh? 
<laughs> I'm just thinking it must be so traumatic and, and well not just traumatic but also difficult for the actors to maintain that kind of intensity over so many episodes because I mean mm. as far as I can tell it takes like half a year to film a season yeah and can you imagine like for six months just day in day out really not smiling very much <laughs> like do you I forget that, how to smile that is why so many actors are in therapy yeah, it makes because sense. it's very, um, especially people who do method acting, which I don't think Elizabeth Moss does. I think if you did method acting, uh, method acting <laughs> for uh, *Handmaid's Tale*, you'd actually turn into a psychopath, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's very good. But aside from that, I recently I ran across an article yesterday, which is actually news from last year, but apparently it's progressing now. About um, so as we know. Climate change, global warming is causing glaciers to melt and stuff like that. Sure. Um, it's also causing uh, snow on mountainous areas to melt. And yeah. that's revealed a whole bunch of corpses. Oh, on Mount Everest? Mm, and on, on uh, Mount Everest and a bunch of other places. Um, yeah. So that was actually from last year, but it's actually getting worse now. And apparently they found a few thousand year old, no, like a million year old virus. Whoa. But they say that it's unlikely that they could actually do anything because it's not like there's a body that can carry it. They're all corpses. <laughs> so I don't think we can get viruses from corpses. I mean, this may sound stupid, but I actually didn't realize that uh, viruses could uh, survive that long in ice. Yeah, so that's. I think that's why they're not... I'm not entirely sure how they found it, but I think that is why they're not too worried about it. But what's gross is that apparently it's dying to smell. Oh. <laughs> so... There's actually so many. What happens is that people used to bury people underneath um, churches and they didn't really do a full, like, they didn't embalm the body or anything. And right. it, because it was so cold, they didn't ever think that it would melt. Oh, and, I and see. And the bodies would start, you know, decaying. Decaying. So now they are. <laughs> and apparently it's causing huge stenches everywhere. Oh, that is so disgusting. I know, but I thought it was fascinating. That is fascinating. You know, I heard on the Box of Oddities podcast, which, by the way, I recommend to anyone who's interested in, like, oh, sure. random facts and weird things and so on. Anyway, I heard that apparently Mount Everest is the largest open-air graveyard in the world. That's okay. And that climbers actually measure their progress by mm. whether they've passed a certain corpse. Like, apparently it's impossible to... I mean, so there's certain paths up Mount Everest, right? Yeah. And it's impossible to get to a certain point without passing this one specific corpse called Green Boots. Okay. But let me, you know, because all you can see is the boots. And oh! <laughs> okay. Because the rest of the body is frozen or the rest of the body is gone? I think the rest of the body is under snow. Okay. Why has nobody taken that out? Oh, because it would cause an avalanche? I think, well, I think that it's also a kind of honorable to have, uh, you know, died on this mountain in pursuit of this, you know, great achievement and they're almost kind of memorialized by being there. You know, like how mm. they say a captain goes down with his ship or like naval officers should be buried at sea, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. I think it's the same kind of thing. It's almost like a salute to the brave people who attempted this. But you know what freaks me out is that if you are climbing Mount Everest and then you get stranded up there next to a dead body and then like that dead body is your only friend for several days or weeks and then you just sort of go crazy. And well, you name I mean, him Fred, and <laughs> I have a whole theory, like a fantasy here. I mean, generally you don't climb Everest or really any major mountain on your own. Okay. Like, <laughs> like it's very unlikely that you will make it up and down that mountain all on your own. Yeah. So, unless you've unfortunately lost your climbing partner. Mm. Have you ever wanted to do that? I mean, not lose your climbing partner, but <laughs> climb. Um, uh, not in the slightest. Me neither, hey? I, I don't know if that makes us unadventurous or... No, I mean, it just makes us, you know... Survivalists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it just means we have a healthy appreciation of life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I mean, seriously, no disrespect to mountain climbers. They're yeah. amazing people. But just personally, there's no way I could have the kind of grit to really make it through something like that, you know, the slog, the altitude sickness, the loneliness, the very real possibility that you are going to fail. Yeah, I mean, I hate heights. I can't really stand on ladders without sweating slightly, so... <laughs> and I mean, like, step ladders. <laughs> so I definitely couldn't do that. <laughs> climb, up, climb up on a small stool. And... Yeah, no, hey? <laughs> no, literally, I, I struggle. <laughs> but anyway. But yeah, that's, uh, you know, that's what I ran across. Yeah, interesting. Well, I have a 
equally bizarre piece of news. Mm -hmm. It's actually a mystery story. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, the, I don't think there's enough data to solve it, but yeah. <gasps> An unsolved mystery? Yeah. I am here. Forget the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> so, I was looking through the news and I found this article on The Guardian. The title is, Man has been receiving pizzas he never ordered for almost 10 years. <laughs> Should you be complaining? Wait, did you, does he have a favorite one? No, so okay, the funny thing is, right, he actually is complaining because apparently this poor man, uh, he's um, a Belgian guy named Jean van, I think, Lundegem? Mm -hmm. Lundegem? Anyway, he's been having pizza delivered to his home at literally any time of the night or oh. day for oh, 10 straight it's years. It's a prank. But, but I mean, who maintains a prank for 10 years? Someone who was really messed up. Yeah, the guy is like 65 years old. It's not only pizzas, sometimes it's like kebabs or pitas or something. And he just has these delivery people knocking at his door like maybe, you know, 2 a.m. or something like that. And he still doesn't know who has been sending them. And, you know, the, um, what do you call them, like pizza places and things yeah. have actually, you know, also been frustrated because this guy is constantly like, no, I didn't order this pizza. And I think he sends the food back sometimes. Oh, no. Because, okay. he, you know... Maybe he's vegan and he doesn't eat this stuff. <laughs> but surely the the, the um, delivery places can trace back the order or something. Um, I mean, I guess not. That's weird. Though. I mean, it's all. I mean, it's gonna come through either the side phone number or something. <laughs> well, I think if you order online, probably they don't. I don't think they are allowed to trace your IP address or anything. Oh, uh, I suppose no. You'd have to get like the police. Yeah, that and would stuff be like, like that. technically an invasion of privacy, and mm -hmm. I don't think there's enough here to actually call the police and like put in her harassment claim. <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. That's <laughs> so strange. Apparently, in the January last year, he received ten different food deliveries. One of which was for 14 pizzas. One delivery was 14 pizzas. Yeah. <laughs> what? Wait, are you sure that he didn't, people aren't getting his address? No, but it's several different delivery places. So they can't be getting his address wrong. Yeah. And, I mean, 10 years. <laughs> yeah, true. That's interesting. Apparently on that day... and Oh, and by the way, the 10 deliveries in January was all on one day. Oh, what? Yeah. Okay. And apparently on that day, it cost the pizza place 450 euros because, I mean... You know, he couldn't eat all that pizza, so he just sent them some back. Why don't you just give it to and people? Yeah, I was thinking <laughs> you know, that myself. Like homeless people? Yeah. Or just neighbors? <laughs> That's true. But I guess maybe it's not particularly ethical, because, I mean, they have to trust that you didn't touch it, because there's no formal ceiling on pizza boxes. So Yeah, but I mean, if you've been receiving this for 10 years, surely <laughs> you'd yeah, be but, like, but I'm the guy who gets free stuff, but <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not poisoned. <laughs> Yeah, because I think also, like, um, the food outlet is legally obliged to throw food away that has been returned. That's the thing, yeah. So that's why yeah. I thought, you know, you could give it to people. But um, also, I thought so, initially I thought maybe someone had put in, so you can put in, like, a lifetime order, apparently, of the delivery to people. But if it's a diff if it's different kind of orders and at all kinds of times of the day, then clearly someone is making the order yeah. each time. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not, like, an automatic thing that goes off. Yeah, it's very weird. That's interesting. <laughs> so, I wonder if it's going to stop if he dies. Or was just going to continue to the next owner of the house. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that's my little urban mystery for today. Fantastic. So, send us your theories. I mean, you know, in comments or an email or something. Oh, if, send oh, us some pizzas. Also, this is a uh, public message to the mysterious pizza guy. Please, come forward. We will protect your identity. We just want to know why you are doing this. In exchange for some pizzas, we shall protect your identity. Oh, yeah, yeah. FYI, if you want to send us free pizzas for 10 years i'm totally down with it yeah i yeah. mean you know we can send good. you our updated addresses because that's not creepy we can send you a list of things that we like to eat mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> i mean maybe it is just a good samaritan who thinks that they're doing something good for someone that's what i would have thought but the fact that he sends it at all kinds of times of the day yeah, is that's weird, weird. Also, affording pizzas in one time <laughs> what are you doing you're trying to kill the person pepperoni <laughs> Well, anyway, um, let's get on to our stories. I'm excited mm -hmm. to see what you have today. Oh, yeah, it's my time today. Okay, so I have got a story. Well, I'm talking about two different creatures from Benin and Ashanti mythology. Uh, Ashanti just it's from Ghana. To confirm, yeah, they're like the biggest tribe in Ghana, right? Uh, yeah, I think the biggest um, ethnicity group in 
in Ghana. I have discussed them before, but first let's talk a little bit about Benin. So um, I'm talking about the Aziza, and I think it's pronounced Mamotia, but I'm not, honestly not too sure. Somebody actually knows how to pronounce it, did say. These are um, fairy-like creatures. Ooh, fairies! Mm-hmm. Okay, so a little bit of history on Benin. Uh, it's formerly known as Dahomey. By started by the Portuguese. Okay, start calling it that. Um, it's located in West Africa, with Nigeria to the east of it. The official language of Benin is French, with several indigenous languages such as Fon, Bariba, Yoruba, and Dendi commonly spoken as well. Um, not much is known about the history of Benin pre-colonization. Before 1700, there were several city-states, political systems, and ethnicities coexisting with each other, um, such as the ethnic groups Aja, Yor- Yoruba, and Gbe. There, uh, there was also a significant military presence in the form of the Oyo Empire, which actually regularly conducted raids and obtained tributes from nearby populations. Oh, so they were a tyrannical empire? Kind of, yeah. But then by the early 1700s, what was known as the Kingdom of Dahomey was founded, consisting mostly of the Fon people which is actually the largest ethnic group in modern Benin. And this kingdom lasted until 1904. Quite a long time. It lasted through colonization. Oh, interesting. So Mm. the colonists actually allowed the kingdom to survive. Yeah. Actually, well, not allowed. So in this kingdom, young boys were often apprenticed to older soldiers and taught the kingdom's military customs until they were old enough to join the army. So it is a very militaristic culture. Also, what is very interesting, or at least what I found interesting, was that the kingdom was famous for instituting an elite female-only soldier group um, called Ahosi, which means the king's wives, or Mino, our mothers, which is in the Fon language, Fongbe. But, like, <laughs> the uh, elite force in Black Panther, if you want to use that as an example. Oh, cool. There was a female-led, female-only kind of warriors. Right, okay, so were they like a female cohort as part of the larger clan of warriors, or they were like their own separate faction? Well, they still served the kingdom, but I think separate to the other normal soldiers, the men soldiers. Hmm, How interesting. So actually, they they came to be known as Dahomean Amazons by many Europeans who were researching it. So a reference to Greek myth. Exactly, yeah. And in general, the kingdom's military skills led to them actually being called Black Sparta from European observers and 19th century explorers such as Sir Richard Button. So, Eurocentrism strikes again. Yeah, definitely. It feels a bit racist, but okay. <laughs> yep. But what's what I mean, what I really want to talk about is the, the fact fairies. that... The fairies, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also the fact that they had such an advanced military culture. Which I found was quite interesting at the time. Now, unfortunately, in 1472, the kingdom began participating in the transatlantic slave trade. I did mention this in the episode about Anansi. It was oh, yes. the trade that... So they were actually actively kind of trading in human bodies with America. Yeah, and these these then slaves would go would be transported to the Americas, for example. That's how they spread into the Caribbean and stuff like that. Right. So at the time when it first started, with, it started with the Portuguese, the leaders at the time were actually very resistant to the idea of this slave trade. But by the 1700s, leadership was actively engaging in the trade, primarily selling off their war criminals. Ah. So they were justifying it in some way, but it was like, well, look, it's not our innocent people, it's criminals, but obviously <laughs> they're still people. Yeah. That's a very interesting kind of moral question there. Yeah, and apparently it, it racked up some serious money for the leader. Wow. Like he was benefiting, like, no tomorrow. Um, and so, yeah, uh, very sadly, the slave trade grew so much that the area actually was nicknamed the Slave Coast. Ooh, ouch. Mm. So by 1892, Dahomey was finally conquered and colonized by France before achieving full independence in 1960 as the official kingdom of Benin. So it actually took quite a lot for it to finally be, I mean, 1892 was actually quite late right. for it to be uh, fully colonized. So yeah, a bit of a hard-hitting history, but I think it was important. Okay, so the Aziza comes from Benin, and they're described as a supernatural race of creatures who live in forests, and they're sometimes called fairies. Though not much is known about them, they are often compared to the European idea of fairies. So they're actually so amazing. The Aziza are thought to be tiny humanoid creatures, usually covered in a thick layer of hair, and uh, with colorful wings comparable to butterflies. So I think it's really pretty. (laughs) Fairy fairies. (laughs) <laughs> okay. That has a whole bunch of connotations. I only realized how that sounded after <laughs> I said it, so I'm sorry. I had no it's all intention good. of being offensive. I mean, literally, <laughs> literal fairies <laughs> and they're furry. <laughs> yeah, we get you. Um, so they were renowned as being extremely beautiful and giving off a slight glowing aura. 
so they just glowed medically all the time. They lived in silk cotton trees or anthills and were generally quite shy but will always help those in need. Wait, they lived in anthills? Mm-hmm. With the ants? Mm-hmm. Actually, the... Uh, oh, did they use the ants as chariots and they just like went around riding on the ant backs? So there are a few uh, sources that say that. But oh I, my couldn't, God. <laughs> I couldn't really find very legitimate ones. I don't want to say that they did that, but I kind of hope they did. Well, it's my head cannon now. Okay. And um, there's actually some really cute art with Aziza's riding ants. Cute. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they're quite shy. They're actually not mischievous like quite a few other, like some European fairies are, for example, you know, where they kind of wreak havoc or silly right. things, not, not um, evil. But they're very sweet and they're happy to impart practical and spiritual knowledge to humans, including how to create and use fire. So it's interesting, there's a little bit of a Prometheus theory here, where it's the fairies who taught us how to use fire. So, um, interestingly enough, uh, through a bunch of different myths that I've been going through, there's actually a lot of African mythology that involves some creature or some god giving humans fire. It's yeah. actually quite ubiquitous across the continent. Yeah, I think, I suppose, I mean, it's quite incredible to think that we came up with that all by ourselves. <laughs> like, how did we even think to do that? <laughs> what you mean to create fire? I mean, yeah, it's pretty incredible. I think it was probably an accident. I mean, probably. <laughs> like, yeah. Bolt of lightning hits some twigs, and we're like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> we're like, "Revelation! <laughs> <laughs> what if we could create that?" And someone was like, "Focus on the important things," and then yeah, yeah, no, I get you. So the Aziza also possess what is called gibo, which are supernatural powers which can heal, cure, or harm. So they would, if if you were in trouble during a hunt or during travels, you could call upon the Aziza and they would come help you figure out how to heal yourself or harm who, whatever or whoever is attacking you. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Since the fairies were considered to bring good luck, hunters or travelers would often call to them to ask for guidance. Unfortunately, however, so many people would try to do this and it kind of grew into like a taking advantage of the fairy situation that they withdrew eventually into the forest. That's such typical humans. They have to go and mess up a good thing. This is why we can't have nice things. I know, yeah, yeah. So I think like we tried to get them to do whatever we wanted them to do, so they just kind of disappeared after a while. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. Imagine that um, sort of modern day industrialization and things probably also pushed them out. Yeah. Because I mean, you said they live in, they lived in um, cotton in, trees yeah, and anthills. Yeah, so, so deforestation kind of helped. Exactly, yeah. So that was the Aziza. Then the Mamatia from, is from Ashanti mythology. So I did talk a little bit about Ashanti, the Ashanti people of Ghana in the episode featuring Anansi the Spider God. So I'll just briefly go over it. Um, so the Ashanti people are part of the Akan ethnic group of Ghana. The Akan are known for founding the Ashanti Empire, which lasted from 1670-1957, and they possessed incredible military skills and wealth. The Ashanti people strongly resisted British colonization and engaged in a long war with invading forces in an attempt to drive them off. The Anglo-Ashanti War actually consisted of four great wars, and they were only defeated in 1901. Wow. So that's very, very late um, compared to other countries in Africa. Again, the Ashanti people were also involved in the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, when you say involved, you mean like actively? They actively, yeah. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, here they actually didn't specify that it was war criminals, so I think they they were conquering neighboring areas and actually selling off wherever they conquered. That's so vulnerable. Yeah, not great at all. I mean, I guess, yeah, I mean, you can't justify it, but... I guess they were trying to ensure their survival, but still. Yeah, no. You can't, you can't, you can't justify <laughs> I mean, slavery. The fact that the kings and you know people in high-class positions weren't just uh, surviving, but actually profiting off mm. the slave trade makes this like even more horrendous. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's true. It's actually interesting because I feel that we speak a lot about how Europeans and even Americans to a certain extent are kind of uncomfortable about their history because of things like the slave trade and stuff like that. But, um, you know, when you start learning things like this, you realize that uh, even those countries that, you know, we consider to be uh, victims of the slave trade and kind of of colonialism and things like that also have quite a bit of shame in their history that, you know, they weren't necessarily these helpless innocent parties and things mm. like this so yeah we we have a fair bit of shame in our history as well yeah i mean i think it just reveals the um the very very unpleasant fact of human nature the powerful are always going to screw up the powerless yeah. <laughs> you know, the weak. because i mean it's 
I mean, okay, sure, they're all criminals, but who was selling them off? The leaders. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um. So, oh uh, yeah. So so the Momotia uh, fairy comes from the Ifomshanti mythology. So these are also forest-dwelling fairies, um, but they c- were also considered as possibly a bosom. So the, those are minor deities in Ashanti mythology. Mm-hmm. They were no more than one foot high, with curved noses, yellowish skin, and feet which point backwards. Oh, that's that's weird. <laughs> I don't Actually, like that. It's interesting. So many creatures in African mythology have strange feet. Oh. I'm not entirely sure why. Like, is it just a feet fetish? <laughs> <laughs> What's going on there? A foot fetish. <laughs> <laughs> so, interesting enough, they communicate with each other via whistling. So, when you hear a random whistling as you're like hiking through a far- forest, you know what's going on there. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. <laughs> um, so apparently they say that you should be careful because if you whistle, you, you're not entirely sure what could come out. <laughs> oh, so these are not like the helpful furry fairies. Yes. Helpful <laughs> furry fairies. We're going with it. Yeah, I'm embracing it. <laughs> yeah, so um, like the Aziza, they possess phenomenal medical knowledge, but they're very picky as to who they're going to give this to. They will only impart such knowledge onto other medical professionals. Oh, well, seems reasonable. I'm just like, I'm just imagining this tiny fairy like, Are you a doctor? <laughs> Are you? <laughs> I want to see some certification before I tell you how to do what to do with these herbs. Well, yeah, what do you got? M-Med, D-Med, <laughs> What M-B-H- kind of school? M-H-C, whatever. <laughs> you okay there? <laughs> Having a stroke? <laughs> I'm not a doctor, okay? M-B-B-H. <laughs> um... Uh, so these fairies ha- are not, however, benevolent like the Aziza, as you say. So there's actually three different kinds. We have the black momotia, who are peaceful and helpful. Um, these may kidnap you, but it's only to teach you the art of medicine and to feed you bananas. <laughs> so they're actually really sweet. They just want you to learn, like, educate yourself and eat. <laughs> Get that potassium. <laughs> so <laughs> so they're, they're, they will kidnap you, but they mean well. You're like, girl, your potassium is low as fuck. <laughs> like, they're sickly. We need to help. Cut them there. Also, they need to learn a trade. <laughs> yeah, useless. Get a job. <laughs> uh, so uh, bananas are their favorite fruits. So that's why they feed it to you. Then you get the red and white momotia, which are the tricksters, and they're greedy. And they're always looking for ways to take advantage, and more importantly, ways to steal your food. Oh, man. Yeah. So one gives you bananas, one takes your bananas. Exactly. So, just a random tidbit, the white momotia love making a dish called suman, which is rice boiled in coconut milk and spices, which sounds really nice. That sounds delicious. Yeah, I'm like, take me to the red one. (laughs) (laughs) When you're still on (laughs) medicine. Yeah, fuck your bananas. Right? (laughs) No, I'm joking. I love bananas. If you're giving me free bananas, I will accept them. I'm just saying, man. Rice and coconut, yum. Mm, true. So the Momotia's biggest weakness is its pride, which we have we have actually seen before. I don't think you've recognized this fairy, but I actually mentioned them in the Anansi episode. Anansi managed to trap a Momotia with a gum baby. Oh yeah, those dumbasses. <laughs> I remember. She was like, why are you not talking to me, gum baby? Yeah, and it showed Steph, but then she got stuck. <laughs> so these are those fairies. <laughs> not exactly, but, but so it was because she was really hungry. Uh-huh. And they love stealing food. Right. Yeah, so um, uh, generally, the Momotia, whether black, red, or white, they function as messengers be- between the realms of spirit and nature for the other gods. That's why people think they're minor deities. Okay. Because, you know, they, they're the major deities, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, that was very short, but that's, that you know, it was so hard to try to find information on this. Yeah. And to, to fact check it. But yeah, that's all I have on them. They really remind me like a bunch of red, white, and uh, black Tinkerbells. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the Pride. The you know the Tinkerbell series? Yeah. That's on Probably Children's Channel? Disney Plus, I'm thinking. Yeah, I'm going with that. Where they're like different colors. And yeah. like there's one that's kind of selfish and one that doesn't like Tinkerbell because she's skinny or whatever, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah kind of like that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting <laughs> that fairies are just generally known for being sort of stuck-up idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Except the Aziza. I'm going to imagine them looking at these guys like, why can't you just be nice for once? Yeah, you dumb, naked-ass fairies. <laughs> Ain't got no fur. <laughs> um, yeah, so since this is really hard to figure out, 
word is what. I actually have quite a few references here. So I used Encyclopedia of African Religion, Volume 1, by Molefe Kete Asante and Ama Mazama. Encyclopedia of Fairies and World Folklore and Mythology, by Teresa Bain. Encyclopedia of Beasts and Monsters in Myth, Legend, and Folklore, by Teresa Bain. Oh yeah, I also found some information on kugali.wordpress, um, which actually led me to checking out a site called Kugali Media. It's actually really cool. It's an entertainment company that focuses on stories inspired by African culture through um, comic books, art, and animation. Mm. They want to bring stories of Africa to the forefront. And so if you want to check it out, it's actually really cool. Their comics are available online. Mm-hmm. So it's called Kugali Media. Warriors of Muthwiki, Cryptid Wiki, Into the Wonder.wordpress, and repository.com. Repository? No, repository. Reciprocal. Recipro- oh, sorry. Reciprocate. <laughs> you know what? You can't read. I can't read. And also, they're trying to say reciprocate tree because it's an environmentally friendly site, and I just I can't. Yeah, I don't think that was the best marketing decision. Not really. It's very hard on my mouth. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's that. I just wanted to show you some pictures, which I think I'll be able to put up on Instagram. So many people have done their own depictions of fairies. Usually, I think they're trying to show them in somewhat traditional African attire. Right, yeah. This is a bit similar to what the Benin people would wear. Right, so the whole turban and uh, dress combination. Yeah. Uh, orange. Yeah. Orange, yeah. Usually there's um, jewelry and stuff, but uh, like very bright colors. In I general. find it interesting that um, that particular fairy has a parrot on her hand, considering yeah. they're supposed to be one foot <laughs> in size. So that's mm. a, a very small parrot. <laughs> it's a micro parrot. <laughs> But yeah, I just found them very beautiful. Yeah, these can see beautiful illustrations. Yeah, the whole butterfly thing. And also they've got like warrior fairies, which is quite interesting. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, we'll definitely put some of these up on yeah. Instagram so for you guys to check out. Yeah, but those are the fairies of African mythology. I love that. Thank you. I thought that was amazing. Awesome. All right, we're going to um, go into our promo break now, and then I'll be back with a story from Nigeria. Awesome. Do you enjoy video games, drinking, and attempting to solve the world's problems through ridiculous schemes? Spend some time with Zach and Josh from the Midwest Meltdown. This show was created by two friends who have spent the past 14 years telling funny stories, talking about video games, and anything else that comes to mind. They wanted to turn their passion for gaming into something they could share with others. Again, that's the Midwest Meltdown on Spotify, Apple Music, and Podbean. Check them out. They would be happy to have you. So I just want to say that during our promo break, <laughs> the Shiro was actually attacked by a. Uh, <laughs> Why are you telling them my shame? A standing fan. <laughs> this is. <laughs> what was it doing so close to my chair? She just like sat down, and this thing was suddenly in her face, and she literally freaked out. I did that in confidence. <laughs> announcing this on the show. So today I'm talking about the legendary founding father of the Hausa people, okay, called Bayajida and his heroic exploits. Alright, hero time! So before I get into the legend, as per usual, mm-hmm. a little bit about the Hausa. As many might know, the Hausa are the largest ethnic group actually in all of sub-Saharan Africa. Really? Yeah, not just I in Nigeria. I've never heard of them. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You need to get up on your African literature. You know, I'm very South African-centric. Because I'm just like, yeah, so the, you know, the Zulus and then... mm. Yeah, I mean, so as far as I can tell, in Nigeria, the three main ethnic groups are the Hausa, the Yoruba, and the... I don't know if Igbo is a language or a tribe. I'm really sorry if I offend anyone with that. I actually can't remember. You know, I think it's both. Yeah, not sure about that, but yeah, the house are a very prominent ethnic group. Okay. So they belong primarily to southern parts of Niger and to Nigeria, but they're also indigenized in some 14 other African countries. Oh, so okay. yeah, they're they really get around. Yeah, they're spread out over the continent. Uh, they're mostly Islamic and they speak the language Hausa. Okay. Now, another important thing to know in terms of the legend I'm about to tell is that during the first 1000 years of the common era, there existed the Hausa Kingdoms, also known as Hausa Land. Mm-hmm. Hausa Land lay between the eastern and western Sudanic kingdoms of modern-day Ghana and Mali, and by the 14th century, the city-state Kano became an extremely powerful trading state all across West and North Africa. That is what I'm talking about. Yeah, these were... Power! The ones. You know? 
I love learning about these kingdoms. Like, yeah, it's amazing how varied and just there's so many. <laughs> there's just so many. Yeah. So now that we have some idea of the backdrop against which the story is set, let's get into the fabled origins of these truly magnificent people. So the precise date of Bayajida, his uh, birth and death, is not known. We do know that he is said to have come from Baghdad, Iraq. Oh, okay. Yeah, so Bayajida, or um, his Arabic name is uh, Abu Yazidu, mm -hmm. was actually a prince in Iraq, being the son of King Abdullah. Oh. <laughs> uh, Abdullahi. Okay. <laughs> but after Queen Zidam or Zigawa conquered his hometown, he was exiled and forced to travel across Africa with the posse of warriors until they arrived in Borno, which forms part of modern-day northern Nigeria. Mm. So, essentially, according to this story, the Hausa people claim Arabic or... Well, I mean, some of them claim Arabic origin, some of them claim uh, Iraqi origin. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I find that very interesting and but, I mean, quite unusual. I yeah, think. it seems odd, but I think it fits very much with the kind of modern Islamic culture. So did this legend then come about after, you know, after Islamization of, of this area? Or Islamization. 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 Islam? That's a word now. What is it called? You're just up in here making up making words. Making up words. <laughs> Reprocatory. Reprocatory. Islamization. You know what I mean. Anyway, like. yeah. Um, you know, it's, I actually don't know that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's... Because that kind of makes sense. Case. Better, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, another version of the story actually says that Bayajida's exile was as a result of a quarrel with his father. Mm. But I only found this version on one source versus like many sources saying he was exiled by the conquering queen. So I think that's more reliable. Also cooler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, it was during this time in Bono in uh, northern Nigeria that Abu Yazidu actually acquired the name Bayajida. Oh, okay. So he, previously he was known by his Arabic name, and then he got a Hausa name. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bayajida in Hausa actually means he who did not understand before. You know nothing, Jon Snow! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I didn't think of that at all. Uh, it's because I've been listening to too much Fact or Fantasy. <laughs> That's no fantasy, another podcast recommendation. Definitely, go check out Chase and Josh. <laughs> so Bayajida also allied himself with the Sultan of Borno and helped defend the territory against enemy armies. Mm -hmm. But things were not rainbows and puppies for that long because it really turned into more of a frenemy situation. Uh -huh. um, the thing is, Bayajida's army was much more powerful than the Sultan's and it got to a point where basically he was the major force oh, okay. in yeah. Borno. He's so, worried about a coup. Yeah. Understandably, the Sultan started feeling like, eh, this guy's got serious big dick energy, <laughs> and it's a problem for my kingdom. Ah, uh, the big dick energy is back. <laughs> Didn't we mention that in our very first episode? <laughs> Can't remember. <laughs> anyway, so believing Bayajida planned to overthrow him, the Sultan decided to deal with the situation in the most obvious and natural way possible. You could probably guess. Pick me, pick me. He said to kill him. No, that would actually have made sense. Oh. Instead, he decided to give Bayajida his daughter Magira's hand in oh, marriage. Oh, he went the diplomatic route. I mean, no, that makes sense as well. Although well, not really, because you're just making him the next sultan, so... Yeah, I'm not sure what was the thinking behind that. I guess it was a little bit like in the episode where I talked about... Uh, oh my god, what's his name? It's completely gone out of my head. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what's his name? Oh, yes. It's where I was talking uh, um, about the king of the underworld giving... Literally our last episode. <laughs> <laughs> giving... Look, I have a brain like a goldfish. <laughs> anyway, giving his daughter's hand in marriage yeah, yeah. to his enemy, the um, king of the Butrezi. Mm -hmm. um, so it was kind of like having a woman on the inside situation. I suppose also you're like, well, look, if this guy's going to uh, take over anyway, I might as well be the one that authorizes it. So it kind of places you back in the position of power. I like, can kind of see how that works in terms of power play. I think it also creates a kind of honor situation where you can't like kill your own kin. Can't you, though? <laughs> be careful. Anyway, I just wanted to say, like, fuck the patriarchy, because I'm so tired of women being used as bargaining as, chips. Know, yeah, that's true. It, it just comes up so much in, you know, not only African mythology, but pretty much all over. And Not even in mythology, eh? In real life. <laughs> it sucks. Anyway, so the Sultan continued to sort of subtly undermine Bayajira. One time he actually sort of isolated him by persuading Bayajira to leave his warriors at various towns that they had conquered. Oh. 
And that basically left Bayajida alone with his wife and, like, one slave. Okay. So anyway, no doubt wanting to stick it to her dad for marrying her off to literally his biggest enemy. True. Magira warned her husband of her father's treachery, and the couple escaped to Garum Gabas, which is located in the Hadeja region of Nigeria. But now they became kind of like fugitives. Uh, yeah, pretty much. Well, I mean, not really. I don't think the sultan would have pursued them. He was just, he just wanted this guy out of his territory. (laughs) And his daughter, apparently. (laughs) So anyway, in Garum Gabas, Magira gave birth to their first child, which they named Byram. Or Biram, not sure. I'm gonna go with Biram. Sounds cool. But this wasn't the end of Bayajira's travels. Leaving his family in Garum Gabas, Bayajira travelled to Gaia in modern-day Niger, where he commissioned the forging of a knife by local blacksmiths. He then travelled on to Daura, where he stopped to ask an old woman for water. So this is where we come to Bayajira's actual heroism. Mm. Ignoring for now the fact that he basically abandoned his wife and newborn Uh, in a foreign city. I was just thinking that. So I guess, you know, hero and douchebag are not mutually exclusive. So common with heroes of mythology. Looking at you, Theseus. (laughs) Theseus to make a comeback. (laughs) Douchebag of Greek mythology. So the old woman told Bayajida that the people of the town were only allowed to draw water once weekly. Hmm? Since the well was being guarded by a snake named Saki, which in Hausa means king. Okay, now it gets good. So it was only when the entire community t- could get together and fight off the snake that they were able to actually draw water. Oh, so it's not as if the snake is allowing them to draw water every week. They literally have to get together and fight it off once yeah. a week. Wow, Absolutely. that's a lot, eh? How big is a snake? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I mean, as far as I can tell, it was a normal-sized snake. I would have just dialed up Nick Evans. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so inside joke. Well, not inside joke, but inside information. Nick Evans is... Apparently, the only snake catcher in all of this country. <laughs> he just comes up in the news a lot. This is completely sorry, yeah. irrelevant information completely to anyone sorry. who's not South African. <laughs> so Bayajira was like, nah fam, this situation is some horse shit. Mm-hmm. And strolled over to the well with his bucket like a boss ass bitch. All right. I mean, he's like, I'm sorry, are we really going to be able to draw enough water to bath for the whole week? I mean, you people tell me you bath once a week. I mean, they're using like JoJo's. Jojo's South African slang for a water storage container. You are being very South African today. Sorry, (laughs) I shouldn't be apologizing for my South Africanness, which is another word that's made up. As Bayajida pulled on the well rope, the snake came up with the bucket, and grasping its neck, Bayajida beheaded Sarki with his brand new knife. That's all it took. Come on, people. Why was it so hard? Then, for some reason, he decided to throw the snake corpse back in the well. What? And bag the head, which I assume he thought would be, like, a lovely souvenir from the poor nice old lady that just wanted to get the guy some water. And now they can't because there's a snake corpse in it, so there goes the entire water system. Yeah, so, like, 100 points for killing the snake, but, like, minus 80 for poisoning their water source. Oh, dunghead. It's just, he's a genius. <laughs> I did it. Also, you can't use this well, move along. <laughs> Anyway, if anyone is interested in visiting this well, which actually exists, yeah. it's called the Kasuku Well, and it's actually quite a popular tourist attraction. But can I just say, I recommend against drinking the water, because, like, snake cooties. You don't think they've removed it by now? I mean, I just wouldn't take that kind <laughs> of risk, you know? Yeah. You know what it might, like one of my fears are? Not that I've ever used a well before, but if I had to, is actually, like, putting the bucket in, drawing it out, and drawing something else out besides the water. Well, I gather that modern-day wells actually come from, like, groundwater. Yeah, but, like, what about if a bird has a heart attack mid-flight and just falls into the well? (laughs) (laughs) You know what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden, you got bird weirdness in your water, and it's disgusting. (laughs) Oh my god, bird flu. Also, actually, no. Look, birds aren't what I'm really worried about. What I'm really worried about is that no pulling out a hand or something. Ew. I don't know. Just a people disembodied hand? <laughs> people are gross. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> Went off there. Anyway, the people of Dara gathered at the well the next day, and they were like, OMG, sweet, that snake is dead. <laughs> then Queen Magajia Daorama, clearly a little over-eager in her gratitude, offered up a full half of her town to whoever could prove to her that they had slain the snake. She must have been really desperate for snake water. <laughs> I'm just like, you're a queen. Like, couldn't you figure out how to kill this damn snake before Apparently this? it needed that specific dagger from that spe- <gasps> blacksmith. It was a were hyena. <laughs> they needed a were hyena knife. 
And in case you're wondering, reference to episode one, Curse of the Werehyena, if you haven't checked it out. I mean, why are you even here? Yeah, go home. <laughs> anyway, a bunch of wannabes showed up with various snakeheads, as you might expect, none of which matched the rest of Sarki's body, so they were obviously not accepted. Eventually, the old woman came to the queen and informed her that the real McCoy was actually chilling back at her house. <laughs> Wait, is there a weird relationship going on here? Oh, Dude, it's an old woman. That is not in any way relevant. Right, sir. And when Bayajita offered up Saki's head, the queen confirmed that he was the true snake slayer. Hmm. Now check this saucy motherfucker, okay? Oh no, I think I know what's happening. Instead of accepting the queen's offer of half her town, he asked for her hand in marriage Dad, instead. Dad, who's already married? Like, my dude, have you forgotten that you left an entire wife and son back in, like, you know, the middle of nowhere? You know, when he chopped off the snake's head and discarded the body, he was discarding his old life. <laughs> it's like, it's gone now. Like, it's in the past. <laughs> I mean, look, I understand that um, in a lot of Islamic tradition, you can take more than one wife. But, like, this brat didn't even mention to the queen that he's got another wife. Also, I mean, you don't generally leave the other wife in some other random city. Also, I believe that it is courtesy to ask your first wife whether you can take a second wife and then, like, to get her approval. Yeah, because she's the main hunter here. You can't just displace her. Yeah, she's supposed to be head wife. So this guy was, like, some other kind of douche. Anyway... The queen was so hung up on this whole snake-killing thing that she actually married the dude. Why? Now, apparently it was against Dara custom to marry off their queens. Their queens were supposed to remain celibate their entire lives. Interesting. So, Queen Magajia actually decided to hold off on doing the dirty with her new husband, <laughs> instead offering him a concubine named Bagwaria. Okay, that's not weird at all. Apparently, she did this because she had to first undertake, like, several rituals before she could break her vow of celibacy. Okay. So, you know, sucks to be queen of Dara, but also sucks to be the full-in concubine, too. Yeah, she's just, you know, temporary. I'm like, I'm sorry, Bayajida couldn't just keep it in his pants for a few days until the rituals <laughs> were finished. It's like, no, I need the concubine now. <laughs> As, you know, mythology goes, Bagwaria immediately fell pregnant. Of course. Because, you know, Bayajida is that manly. <laughs> Just like, boom, pregnant. The snake killer. <laughs> and uh, she gave birth to a son named Karabagari, which, get this, literally means he snatched the town in Hausa. Oh, wow. Okay. So this bad bitch basically called her kid on my way to steal your town. <laughs> which kind of makes me love her a bit. <laughs> I'm like, she may be a concubine, but she's like, my son's gonna pwn all of you. <laughs> Uh, but get this, right? It gets better. Oh, wow. Queen Magajia subsequently had a son of her own, and she named him Bawo, which means give it back. <laughs> are you serious? <laughs> so these guys are like playing tennis with the kids' names. You can't do that to your children. <laughs> it's so funny. That's it. Okay, here's the bummer, though. After Bayajida rocked up in Daura, he actually changed a traditionally matriarchal society oh. to a patriarchal society. Typical. So, that sucks ass. Because his sons now are going to rule. Yeah. Although, just a quick question. If the queen's supposed to be celibate, how did the, like, how did the royalty progress? So, I assume that the um, royalty, like the... Oh my god. Oh my god, it's what's her face from um, Bedknobs and Broomsticks. <laughs> yeah, with her weird... Mrs. Mrs. Price. 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 Her weird squishy. Um, yeah, yeah, sorry, so I was asking you, like, how would the lineage continue if, the, if all the queens are celibate? So I think that instead of the um, throne being passed down through blood, they were probably, like, elected or chosen or something. Maybe they were chosen by ancestors or some mm. sort of gods or something like Might that. Might have been, like, a process of adoption. Like, that kind of worked in the um, Roman Empire. Right. So he would, like, if, you're, if you don't have a son or if your sons die, then you adopt like your nearest relative not right. physically nearest but you know what i mean yeah <laughs> but i mean i actually have no idea so we're just, i'm just like mm. editorializing here interesting um so Bayajida fathered three sons all in all with three separate women mm. and uh, biram and bawo's six sons went on to become the rulers of the seven so-called legitimate house estates Meanwhile, Karabgari, who you will remember is Mr. Steal Your Town, right, right. he also had seven sons, and they founded and ruled the seven illegitimate states. <laughs> they were legitimate and illegitimate states. <laughs> yeah. So 14 states all in all, seven legitimate, seven illegitimate. How do they have so many sons? 
Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> and what happened to his very first wife and child? No, no, so that's uh, Biram. Oh. Yeah, so it, okay. it was actually quite nice because basically the kingdom got divided in thirds or in half, but Biram and Baba ruled together. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you're going to be a douchebag, you might as well be a... Well, he suddenly valued his sons. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the story of the legendary hero of the Hosa people. And I just want to actually end off with a little bit of how he's remembered in the present day. Annually, Dara hosts the Ghani Festival, which involves a reenactment of Bayajira's story as a way of keeping the legend alive. Mm. After the adoption of Islam in the region, the festival was renamed Marlud al-Nabi, but the reenactment part has remained part of the celebrations. The main office holders, so in other words, the royal family and other important ministers of state, actually play the roles of their legendary ancestors. Oh, so the royalty are the actors. Yeah. That's rare. I wonder yeah. if they ever get fruit thrown at them. <laughs> Boo, go home. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> My sources for this story was the book African Mythology A to Z by Patricia Ann Lynch, the article The Bayajira Legend and Hausa History by Dirk Lang, and Wikipedia. Awesome. That was great. <laughs> I mean, look, again, it's oral tradition, mm. so it's pretty unlikely that this guy actually existed but you know it's cool to know that you're descended from a badass snake slayer i guess yeah although i have to say as usual i'm always disappointed with the heroes <laughs> i mean like it was cool and everything but firstly he checked the snake back in the well so there's that issue true and then he was just a douchebag to all his hundreds of wives yeah three or whatever well two and then girlfriend I mean, I don't think he actively mistreated them. No, yeah, I mean, I guess it was the norm at the time. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't seen as anything particularly out of the usual. Yeah, I mean, they seem fine with it. (laughs) They're like, cool, cool, cool. (laughs) We'll just be passive-aggressive with the the son's names. (laughs) Right? Like the ultimate of petty. (laughs) I'll stab you in the back. No, I'll stab you in the back with my son. (laughs) (laughs) That was awesome. That was really enjoyable. Yeah, anyway, we hope that you enjoyed this episode of Legendary Africa. If you did, please do subscribe to us. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I mean, you're already listening to us, so just subscribe on the platform that you're on currently. And uh, do tell everyone about us. Tweet, DM, whatever you need to do. Also check out our YouTube channel, Legendary Africa, where we post most Wednesdays. Yeah. We currently have a video up called We Teach You South African Slang. Yeah, something like that. Um, so go subscribe there, click that notifications button, and hey, you want to do the social media handles? Yeah. Okay, sure. So Instagram, LegendaryPod. And Twitter, LegendaryPod1. <laughs> also email us at staylegendarypod at gmail.com. Yeah, we would be happy to actually even, um, it'd be nice if people could like send us uh, myth suggestions or their stories or, you know, anything. Really. Yeah, absolutely. Got something you want to hear, got a country you want yeah. some myths from. Exactly. What do you think about rice and coconut milk and spices? <laughs> send us your recipes. Hit us up. All right, so until next time, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. Bye.